like to take this time to welcome everyone to our services uh, here at West Irwin Church of Christ. If you would, please come in and take a seat. If you're live streaming with us this morning, we're, we're glad to have you as part of our worship service. Uh, looks like we have a good, good crowd here today, and that's always exciting for us here. We'll begin worship this morning by singing, I am thine, O Lord. I am thine, O Lord.
Good morning. We are glad that you were here. And to you visitors, thank you for coming. If you're looking for a home, we hope this is it. We have a newsy day today, so let me see if I can get through all of this. We got some great news. Kelly and Gina Ross have placed membership with us. I told you I got to get you to stand so everybody can look at you. Stand up. <laughs> They're just moving back from uh, Colorado, and we are so glad that they have come here to worship with us. And uh, like Gary said, we're fixing to put you all to work. <laughs> I got grandbaby news. Lee and uh, Camille Mink have got number nine grandbaby. He said he wrote it right here. Chase and Lindsay have their new baby, born July the 30th, seven pounds, four ounces, River Jean Mink. What a great name, River Jean Mink. Congratulations to the, all of the Mink family over there. Wonderful news. For the elders, deacons, and ministers, Wednesday night we're having our meeting right after church. We uh, want to come up with ways that we will be reopening the church to, uh, to, to the normal, used-to-be way of doing business. Um, hopefully all things are going to work out. So this will be a meeting, so bring your ideas, bring your, bring your thoughts. We're going to discuss going back to being normal again, and I am ready. I think with that, I will read this from Romans. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Would you pray with me? Father, we come today to worship our Creator, the Creator of all that is and all that has been and all that will be. The God that created the king and the beggar and, and the baby yet to be born, how great you are. Father, we, Father, we do have some great concerns about our world and this country. It is Satan that has set us this world on fire, creating division and hate with, with a goal to destroy and conquer. As you state, a roaring lion seeking to devour. The answer, the answer to the world's problem is always the same. It always has been. Jesus. Lord, we, we pray for, for a greater passion and a sense of urgency in this church and in each one of us, so that we will help us intensify our efforts to bring the gospel to all men. For by faith, we know the eternal plan. By your word, we can see the outcome. And through grace, our eternity has been promised. And we are so thankful. Father, it is our custom to bring our concerns to your, to your throne of our individual members and family. We know you are aware of these needs, and, but as you have commanded, 
We want to bring our loved ones to you in faithful prayer. We pray for Greg Greg Latham, who has been tested positive for COVID. We ask for Peralph, who is in the hospital, and Eli, who is improving but continues to need our prayer. Amanda, whose procedure went well, but uh, Father, we still want you to be with her and help her in the recovery. Holly Parrish and her cancer. We also want to pray for others, the Colliers and Sue Skipper and Dot and Bitsy and Fred Wingate and oh, there is there is so many more in our congregation. We just pray that you'll be with each one of them and help them. We also want to pray for the Blackstone family and their loss and just bless them. And Father, we also want to give thanks for the babies that we're having here at uh, West Irwin. We just thank you for them and we just praise you for that. But we also know others that are not listed but are also on our hearts as we ask this prayer. We have those that are sick and heartbroken and insecure of the future that may hold for them. We ask that you provide confidence in the eternal assurances that you have promised all your believers. Lord, we, we anticipate our unimaginable eternity. For by grace we are saved through faith and not of ourselves, but by the love of our Father, through Jesus Christ our Savior. And it's by his name we pray. Amen. One more thing I want to bring to your attention is uh, Terry Frick has turned in his deacon's papers. We are happy for him, but sad. And Terry has been such an asset to us and uh, to all this church, but especially to me. He's put the sound systems in here. He's done the live streaming. He's done so many things. Uh, he calls me often and asks me what to do, and I said, Terry, whatever you think, I'm with, I'm with you. It's been so wonderful. Yes, Terry, whatever you want to do, that's exactly what I want to do. Terry's wonderful. He wants, he's still going to be here, and he's still going to participate. He is traveling some now, and we're well-earned uh, retirement, and um, we just want everyone to tell Terry how much we love him. And, and he's not through yet. We're still going to call on him when he is in town. So let's have worship.
Good morning. It is a good crowd. We're glad if you're visiting with us, we're glad you're here with us. And to our members, thank you for being here. When you hear the term upper room, what comes to mind? Upper room. There could be a number of things that come to your senses. It could be a a painting by the famous painter Leonardo da Vinci. He painted that great painting of the Lord's Supper, his depiction of that. It could be just the miraculous booking of that upper room. If you remember that story, Jesus told Peter and John, you're going to go into the city. You're going to see a man carrying a vessel of water, which in itself was unusual. That was something that women did. But you're going to see a man carrying a vessel of water, follow him. The house he goes into, you go in and speak to the master of the house and you tell him the teacher has need of your guest room. The master of the house actually prepared an upper room which was large and furnished. Quite a miraculous event there. It could be you, when you hear of upper room, you think, well, that's the Jewish feast of unleavened bread, the Passover, celebrating the exodus from Egypt, and the Jews did that every year. It could be just thinking of the friendship that Jesus had with his apostles. Sometimes we fail to to think that Jesus and his 12 apostles spent a lot of time together. They were friends. They endured a lot together. And this was an opportunity to come together for the Passover, but also as friends. When you think of the upper room, it could also be an example of the greatest event of humility and servitude that you could possibly have when Jesus, our Lord, washed the feet of those apostles. And of course it could be, when you think of the upper room, it's where Jesus was betrayed by one of his close friends. And lastly, as I was thinking of, when you think of upper room, you think of, of course, the institution of the Lord's Supper. And for our purposes this morning, that's what we want to consider. The institution of the Lord's Supper in that upper room. In Luke 22, we know the story. We're very familiar with it. After they enjoyed their Passover meal, the Lord took bread and wine, blessed each, and gave to his apostles. And he told them as they take it, do so in remembrance of me. And of course the New Testament teaches that this is to be done on the first day of the week when the Christians gathered together after the church was established. Well, today is the first day of the week. The Christians are here So let's pray 
and enjoy this feast together with the Lord. Lord, we're so thankful that we have this opportunity on the first day of the week. We're happy that we can partake of this, what we call the Lord's Supper, this unleavened bread and fruit of the vine in which we remember your sacrifice for us. And Father, specifically as we partake of this unleavened bread, just as you commanded us to do, we remember your body and how it was crucified, abused for us. We're so thankful for that, and we take this time to remember that great sacrifice. In Jesus' name, amen. After the Lord passed that bread, which he had blessed, and passed it to his apostles, he passed the fruit of the vine, and again told them, as often as you drink this, do so in remembrance of me. And here we are, all these decades and centuries later, we're still doing it, and so happy to participate in this. So as we partake of this fruit of the vine, let's think of our Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we are humbled to be in your presence. And in this portion of our worship, we pause to partake of this fruit of the vine, which represents the blood that was shed on the cross for us. We've done this so many times, and yet, Father, Every first day of the week, we look forward to this opportunity to renew our love for you and our thanksgiving to you for that wonderful sacrifice. So we take it now in remembrance of you and the blood that was shed for the forgiveness of our sins. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, that concludes our Lord's Supper. We have this opportunity now, uh, as Paul stated in 1 Corinthians 16, 2, he gave orders to the churches in Galatia and also to in Corinth to use this time to set aside a portion of their earnings so that the work can continue. And so we're happy to be able to continue that and uh, we're so thankful for West Irwin. We're thankful for every member who helps do the work of the Lord. We have a lot of commitments that go forward from West Irwin. And it does take money to get these things done. And, and you're responsible for it. And thank you for that. Let's pray. Lord, you continue to bless us. 
and we're thankful for that. We ask you to continue to bless each one of us in this building this morning. Bless our congregation. Bless the church the world over. And Father, as we have this opportunity to return to you, whether it be online, in the boxes out front, dropping it by the office, whatever manner we choose to do, we thank you for the opportunity. It's part of our worship. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. join in welcoming you, join with our other worship leaders today and thanking God and praising God for such an excellent crowd today, a wonderful attendance. Preachers count 873. So we're growing. Those of you who are online, I'm sorry you can't see that and verify that, but uh, well, 
Maybe, uh, maybe a little over 300 today, it looks like, and we're very, very blessed and humbled uh, by our Lord's provision for us through these last 18 months. We're so very thankful for all of you joining online and understand that for many of you, that is exactly uh, what you need to be doing. And we're grateful for this opportunity to be able to have you join in our assembly today and in our worship uh, together. It is a blessing to uh, be able to thank Terry and Kim Frick for all of the wonderful things that they have done and will continue to do. They are such a great and incredible blessing, just as our shepherd Galen Siegler said, and we are grateful that they will continue to be here and continue to serve and worship uh, together with us. Grateful to have new members, and what a, what a great blessing it is uh, for Kelly and Jeannie to be here and joining us. We appreciate that very, very much, and uh, have many others that are visiting with us, and we always look forward to seeing you as well. What a blessing it is to hear announcements, as Galen said, about uh, new babies, new grandbabies, new great-grandbabies, uh, brother and sister Siegler. So there's all kinds of wonderful blessings uh, going on, and we feel very, very fortunate. Also, of course, the incredible uh, birth, new birth, of our wonderful uh, young men, Ethan and Logan Stone. That was a great moment Wednesday night uh, when their father baptized them here. Uh, Thursday, our grandson, uh, uh, Sam Tyndall, was baptized by his father in Arlington, Texas, and we were able to be a part of that. And so God continues to bless us uh, with wonderful opportunities to grow in his word and in his love. We are very, very blessed, uh, very blessed indeed. Um, You know, it was clear from the start of Jesus' ministry that he was going to challenge the leaders of the Jews. As we think back on the life of Christ, as we gather around the table, as uh, Stan led us in thinking of that upper room and everything that went into that and everything that happened uh, during that time that the uh, apostles were together with Jesus and, and what happened afterwards. As we go through this series looking at Jesus' interaction with individuals and and groups of individuals, this morning we focus on Jesus and the Jewish leaders. They, They were his people. They were his leaders. He was one of them. And yet they rejected him. But it was certainly clear from the start of Jesus' ministry that he was going to challenge them that he was just not going to go along to get along. He was going to call them to grow. As the apostle Peter would later write at the end of 2 Peter, he challenged them to grow in the grace and knowledge of God. That's what he wanted them to do. And he was not going to sit idly by and not push them a bit. And when he did, it cost him his life. But as we look to the beginning of Jesus' ministry, we turn to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7, and so much of those three chapters were challenging to the leaders of the Jews. But I want us to focus especially on the end of chapter 5, that first section of chapter 5, before he begins to speak specifically about how he is the fulfillment of the law, he affirms that he is just that. Matthew 5, verse 17, do not think that I have come to abolish 
the law or the prophets, which I'm sure many of the Jewish leaders accused him of. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 5, verse 20, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law or scribes, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. And that last statement must have hovered over the crowd like a very dark storm cloud. Because the people that they looked to, the individuals that they thought kept the law to the letter and were the example for them to follow, were exactly who he called out, the leaders of the Jews. And he told the crowd, look, unless your righteousness surpasses theirs, you certainly will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And it's likely because of what he'd already said, that they read the law, they memorized the law, they preached and taught the law, but they didn't obey the law from their hearts. And Jesus, in the chapters that followed, really in the years that followed, before his death, called them out for that exact thing. And Matthew chapter 9 is one of those incidents where Jesus challenges the Jewish leaders And it is when he calls a man who was a tax collector to be one of his closest followers, one of his closest disciples, one of the 12 apostles. Matthew 9, verse 9, as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. And if the passage stopped there, the Jewish leaders would have been really mad at Jesus. (laughs) But then, as you know, it goes on. Verse 10, while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not Sacrifice, quoting that great passage from Hosea 6 6. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. This infuriates the Jewish leaders that not only would he call a sinner, a tax collector, to be one of his close apostles, he would also go to his house. And then when they called him out on it, he would actually confront them about their hypocrisy. And so Jesus is on a course. And there are several other passages of scripture on your outline that demonstrate that, including that great story of the Good Samaritan in Luke 10, when Jesus tells one of the religious leaders that the second great commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. And he asks, who is my neighbor? Who do I have to love? And Jesus tells that wonderful parable of the Good Samaritan. And a priest and a Levite and a Samaritan, an outcast. Go by this man that needs help, and the Jewish leaders don't help him. And the outcast Samaritan does. 
Similarly, in Luke 18, that parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, the arrogance of the Pharisee and the humility of the tax collector. Jesus challenged them from the very start. And so I want us to look at just a few aspects that bring out that challenge in a very special way towards the end of Jesus' life. First of all, putting Jesus to the test. They loved testing him. I have a feeling that the religious leaders tested him a whole lot more than just what is recorded in the gospels. But we certainly see that, especially as the gospels begin to wind that message down. And especially in Matthew chapters 22 and 23, we see that back and forth. In chapter 22, beginning at verse 15, they come to Jesus to test him. These Jewish leaders do. And they ask him about paying taxes and Jesus responds in that great way, giving to Caesar what is Caesar, since his face is on the coin and give to God what is God's. They ask him the Sadducees who do not, did not believe there was a resurrection. They try to trap him into uh, calling out this belief, this doctrine so that they could discredit Jesus, but also discredit their fellow leaders, including the Pharisees who believed in the resurrection by this concocting this incredible story and then asking Jesus about it and Jesus silencing them as well. In fact, Jesus' response to them is telling, beginning in Matthew 22, verse 29, you are in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. We sang about those ancient words and they would have been the first to say, we know the scriptures very well. But before Jesus corrects them about this particular doctrine, he challenges and confronts them about their knowledge of God's word. Again, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the other Jewish leaders, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. These men didn't know their Bible, Jesus says. And yet they could quote book, chapter, and verse and find a passage anywhere in there. The Messiah was standing before them and yet the Jewish leaders rejected him. Matthew continues in chapter 22 with a testing question about the greatest commandment that Luke records in Luke chapter 10. To love the Lord your God and to love your neighbor as yourself. And then as... Since turnabout is fair play, Jesus asks them a question beginning in verse 41. Uh, What do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? Well, they said the son of David. That's what the Bible says. And so Jesus asks him, well, the Bible also says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. So if Messiah is King David's son, then King David is greater than the Messiah. And yet, and yet David pays him homage and calls him Lord. How is that? (laughs) And I wonder if Jesus said that with a little bit of a smile on his face. Because they didn't know. And yet that one that David looked forward to was standing right in front of them. In Matthew chapter 23, as you know, Jesus pronounces woe upon woe upon woe to these blind guides, these Jewish leaders, because they failed. They failed God and they failed his people by not living according to the word and not helping the people live true to the word. 
and he condemned them for it. Secondly, today, they, the Jewish leaders were involved in questioning Jesus at his trial. And we, we see that. We see that. And, and, it, and it really begins, as Stan shared, in that, in that upper room. As he washes the, defeat, the feet of the apostles and helps them to see what Christian service will be all about. Not serving Jesus, but serving Jesus by serving others. That second great commandment. And he continues to talk to them and until Judas Iscariot has had enough and he, as Stan mentioned, runs out to betray Jesus. And then comes the arrest and then comes the denials. All taking place now that Jesus has been arrested and is on trial. In Matthew chapter 26, we get a, a window into that trial and into that interaction. In Matthew 26, beginning at verse 57, those who had arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of the law and the elders had assembled. But Peter followed him at a distance, right up to the courtyard of the high priest. He entered and sat down with the guards to see the outcome. The chief priests, verse 59, and the whole Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council, two members of which were Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death, but they did not find any, though many false witnesses came forward. Finally, two came forward and declared, this fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the son of God. You see, up until this point, they had zilch on Jesus. They couldn't convict him of anything. Much less a crime that warranted reporting to the Roman governor Pilate and having him crucified. And so that's when the Jewish leaders look to Jesus and say, you've got to tell us. You're on the stand. There's no Fifth Amendment. Are you the Messiah or not? Verse 64, Jesus replied, you have said so, acknowledging affirmation of what they had said, that he was the Messiah, the Son of God. But I say to all of you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Verse 65, then the high priest tore his clothes and said, he has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look, now you've heard the blasphemy. What do you think to the council? He is worthy of death, they answered. Then they spit in his face and struck him with their fists. Others slapped him and said, prophesy to us, Messiah, who hit you? And so it begins, as you well know. And what Jesus had said, if it were not true, it would have been blasphemy. And according to the law, punishable by death. To claim to be the Messiah, the Son of God, was idolatry and blasphemy. And yet, for Jesus, it was true. It was true. And once he affirms that, they say, what do you need? We don't need any more witnesses. We've heard it from the... uh, This man's own mouth. What do you think? Guilty. 
sentence, death, but not just death by stoning. No, no, no. That's not embarrassing enough. That's not humiliating enough. That's not painful and torturous enough. We need to take him to the Roman governor because only the Romans have the authority to crucify anybody. And that's what we want. And then they began to mistreat him and abuse him and humiliate him. The trial continues. We read about it in the other gospel accounts in John 18. The the Jewish leaders are going back and forth and they finally end up taking him to the Roman governor Pilate and, and Pilate confronts Jesus in John 18 and 19. But the Jewish leaders, because of their strong faith and righteousness, they won't even go into where Pilate was. He had to come out to them because of the Passover weekend, yet they could crucify an innocent man. Luke 22, Luke also records their abuse of Jesus at his trial. And in Luke 23, we see that back and forth between Pilate and Herod. Luke 23 is the only place that we hear about Herod. And Jesus doesn't respond to Herod at all, who is the king of the Jews, as he would call himself, in uh, compliance to the Roman uh, oppressors and governor and emperor. And yet Herod calls for Jesus and his tickled to death that Pilate sent him to him because Pilate hears, oh, he's from Galilee. That's the Jewish country. Let's, let's send him to Herod because he's in town for the Passover. So this is great. I can, I can get rid of this guy and I won't have to make the decision. Herod can. And Herod goes back and forth with him and Luke doesn't record anything that Jesus responds to him. And then in Matthew 27, there is that interesting passage where Judas has remorse, but not repentance. And he takes the 30 pieces of silver back to the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council, and he throws it into the room where they're meeting. And he, and he says, take this back. And they say, no, we're not going to take it back. But then after Judas kills himself, they, they talk about, what are we going to do with this money? We're too righteous. We're too faithful to spend it against the word of God. So let's just buy a cemetery for foreigners. Judas will be the first one there and we'll use it for that. That way our consciences will be clear. Even though we've just sentenced an innocent man, a good man to be killed. Their hypocrisy and selfishness and insecurity absolutely knew no bounds. And they had given up all ethics and all morals to get rid of this man that they saw as a threat to their power. And that's what it was all about. They tested Jesus, they questioned him and abused him at his trial, and then we see them mocking Jesus at the cross. Again, in Matthew 27, a little further down, we read about these events also in Luke and John, of course, and Mark. But in Matthew 27, beginning at verse 38, we read this. Two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. 
Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you're the Son of God. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, the scribes, and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we'll believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. In the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. And one turned away from that, but we don't read of any of these Jewish leaders for now anyway doing that. They were mocking Jesus from the cross. And how would Jesus respond In Luke 23, verse 35, Luke is the only one that records this statement from Jesus as he looks out upon these Jewish leaders and this crowd, this mob that they had stirred up. He prays, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. In John 19, Pilate has them erect a sign that says, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. And again, the Jewish leaders... No, 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 don't, don't put that. Just put that he claimed that because we don't believe that. And Pilate had had enough of these Jewish leaders. And at that time, he looks at them and he says, what I've written, I've written, deal with it. <laughs> We're not doing that sign over. They mocked him. They betrayed him. They... I think in their hearts, these leaders knew that he was innocent, certainly innocent of any crime worthy of death. And yet, and yet they couldn't see past their own agenda. They couldn't see past their own insecurity to take a step back and say, well, let's, let's think about this for a minute. Let's go back and get out the scrolls. Why did David say that? What is Messiah supposed to be like? Isn't there a 53rd chapter of Isaiah that says something about this. But they never did. They were committed to putting Jesus to the test, to questioning him at his trial, to mocking Jesus even as he died on the cross. These Jewish leaders. But there were two exceptions, ultimately. And you know who they are. Joseph of Arimathea is spoken about in all four Gospels. In Mark chapter 15, he was a prominent member of the council waiting for the kingdom of God. In Matthew 27, he himself had been a disciple of Jesus. In Luke 23, he had not consented to their decision. And then we read these words in John 19, beginning at verse 38. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. And so now, Joseph's secret discipleship is made public. And everybody knows. But it's not just Joseph. It's also a man we had read about twice in John's gospel, Nicodemus. We saw him come to Jesus at night in John 3. At the end of chapter 7, we see him sheepishly raising a question at one of the meetings of the Sanhedrin and then being silenced and shutting up. But throughout this ministry of Jesus, these two men seem to have actually saw and heard what was to be seen 
and heard and thought about it and asked themselves questions about it and studied about it and came to believe, yes, yes, this man is who he says he is, the Messiah, the Son of God. So it's not just Joseph. Verse 39, he was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who had earlier visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and alloys, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices and strips of linen. This was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden. We know that it's Joseph's garden and Joseph's tomb. In the garden, a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid because it was the Jewish day of preparation. And since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. And in doing so, they became ceremonially unclean for what, as John records, it was still participation in the Passover. But they also became public enemies number one, A and one B. Because now you have two members of the Sanhedrin, two members of the council that condemned Jesus to death saying we were wrong. This is an innocent man, not just an innocent man. This is the son of God, just as he claimed. Above all, Jesus loved us and died on that cross and took all of this for us. And for Joseph of Arimathea and for Nicodemus, we hear that example and we see that example of what we are to be. We are to be true, faithful disciples of Jesus Christ today, whatever the consequences, whatever the cost. To Christ be loyal and be true. That's how we're going to close our service today. This morning, if we can help you do that, come as we stand and sing our song together. Have you been to Jesus for the cleansing power? Are you washed in the blood?
Father, as we close out this worship service to you, we, we just pray, Father, that we would be teachers of the gospel. More importantly, Father, we pray that we would be people who live the gospel. We pray, Father, that our righteousness uh, would certainly exceed that of the Pharisees and that others would not view us as insincere or as hypocritical in our faith. We would pray, Father, that we would be lights burning bright, exposing the wickedness of man and illuminating the light of Christ. May our actions and our deeds reflect the love of Jesus, our Savior and our Lord. And it is in his name that we make this prayer.